What's a kind of pain or suffering that doesn't freak you out? And this is when you're thinking about starting a business or volunteering or choosing a career. I have found that most people, there's some kind of pain or suffering that they're comfortable enough around that they don't add to the pain or suffering when they're with it. There are people who are so overwhelmed by other people's anxiety, they should not be around people whose primary suffering is anxiety because your presence and your ability to not be surprised or overwhelmed by that particular problem or struggle is this amazing strength that you could bring. Hey, Alice Chase, welcome to another episode of the show. Today's episode features Kelly McGonigal. Uh, Kelly, I first became aware of her work when she wrote in detail about stress that caught my attention. Uh, since then, I've dug into her work and know she is a health psychologist at Stanford, specializes in, I would underscore it as the broad topic of the relationship between the mind and the body. If you know anything about my personal beliefs or the beliefs of the show here, we've been tracking the relationship between the mind and the body for more than a decade. And Kelly wanted to have her on the show because she's a best-selling author of a number of works. Uh, again, the one that I was originally familiar with, The Upside of Stress. She'd written one before that about willpower and her latest book, which we talk a little bit about. We talk about all these books in the show, but um, I'm particularly interested in The Joy of Movement, her new book, which underscores our the ability to help manage, mitigate, um, just talking about movement as a very powerful antidote to the modern epidemics of depression, of anxiety, of loneliness, of fear. And today's show is chock full of not just these concepts, but what to do to actually manage them, how some stress is good, how uh, a certain kind of movement can help manage very particular types of stress, some of the ones that I just shared, and we explore a few others. So today's show is a doozy. It has been personally very valuable to me. I've listened to this a few times um, when you listen to your own show and it helps you. Uh, so I'm going to get out of the way. Yours truly and Kelly McGonagall. <laughs> Kelly, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, I confessed to uh, having been a longtime fan and follower since the way back. I don't remember what year it was. I think maybe 2013 or 14 or something. You 2013. Gave, 2013. You gave yeah. a, a TED Talk, which as my understanding is it's one of the most viewed of all time with 20-something, maybe more. It's 30 million. 30 I know. Million. I didn't think anyone would watch it or I would have thought more carefully about what I was wearing. <laughs> Uh, that talk was about stress, and um, I would like to talk about that today. Among other things, uh, I would like to talk about the value of moving our bodies, um, how it relates to stress and health and well-being. And I would also like to talk about cats, which I'm putting a pin in these things here. And I, and we were just talking also before we started recording, I have a new puppy and I've had cats in the past and the difference between cats and dogs. I find this fascinating. And I think some of the folks at home will too, but the show is largely oriented around human performance and creativity. Um, and I thought that you'd be valuable for the audience on a number of these different vectors that you have written and studied and, and published around. I also want to talk about your word of the year. So I'm putting a pin in a bunch of these things. But to start out, you 
uh, you call yourself a health psychologist, and I would like to understand what that means. I don't know what that means. Yeah. Tell us. You know, I think so. It means that I leverage psychology to help people create health. That's what a health psychologist does: conducts research and and leverages research insights to help people be healthy in every aspect. So emotional health, mental health, physical health, social well being. Um, and I'm I've always been really interested in the mind body relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, so some of the research topics I've looked at are things like when you're feeling strong emotions like anger, how does that affect your heart or your immune system? Um, I'm really under, uh, interested in understanding also how people use psychological and social resources to deal with life challenges. So if you're going through a health crisis, um, how do you find social support and how does that affect your well-being? Um, and as you have previewed I'm super interested in the relationship between physical movement and mental health because I'm somebody who discovered as a kid dealing with anxiety and uh, being prone to depression that exercise was like a miracle drug for my mind. Um, and I continue to teach movement and exercise. It's like a, a practical application of health psychology. And I'm also really interested in helping people um, make positive changes in their lives, which is part of health psychology. Okay. If you want to change how you eat in order to be healthier, to live in a way that's consistent with your values, um, I'm really interested in, again, leveraging psychology to help you be who you want to be um, and to, to like live in a way that's really consistent with your goals and your values. Well, that is very much in line with the goal, one of the goals of the show. And the idea that... Um, I, I think is a good place to start uh, maybe as a door into all those different things that you spoke about just now is the concept, I would say the previously held concept by your own admission in your TED talk that stress is bad. Mm -hmm. And we were programmed uh, since an early age, like don't get too stressed. Are you stressed out? Especially type A people, they don't talk about being, you know, family trauma. They talk about, oh, I'm stressed. These are, you know, words that um, I don't know. We th we throw around pretty casually. And my understanding of your earlier work is, hey, stress is bad. You should mitigate it. And yet, your TED Talk, which we've already mentioned, is thirty million some odd views, one of the most popular, flipped that script on its head. So let's start there with stress. It seems like a good vector into your work. So stress, good or bad? Talk to me about it. Yes good and bad, uh, all of it. It's, it's actually, so the reality is really complex and nuanced, but most people don't talk about it in ways that are complex and nuanced. Most people focus primarily on the negative aspects of stress. And what I discovered about 10 years ago is this research was coming out showing that if we focus only on the harmful effects of stress, that they, it exacerbates the harmful effects of stress and makes it more difficult to capitalize on some of the positive aspects of stress. It's called the stress mindset effect. And so that TED Talk was about kind of like my own personal journey, realizing that what I'd been trained to do as a health psychologist um, was to go in and tell people, like, examine your life. Here's a list of 100 stressful things that you could go through. Have you gone through any of it? And people are like, oh, yes, that's okay. I have had a breakup or a divorce. Yes, my work is very demanding. Um, yes, it's true. I lost a loved one this year. Yes, I worry about politics. Yes, I moved. You know, it, people are like, yes, yes, yes. And then at the end of that list, you're like, guess what? Every single one of those events is toxic, and now you're going to die sooner because you went through it. That was like the way that psychologists were taught to talk about stress. 
everything in life is stressful. Stress is always bad. Tally it up. You're doomed. And please have this breathing technique to try to reverse the effects of your toxic life. Um, So that was how we were all trained to talk about it. Because in part, obviously, first of all, nobody likes to go through suffering. So we all have an, an instinct to understand that a lot of the things that we call stress are unpleasant and negative and harmful, and we don't want them and we wouldn't choose them for others. Um, And also there is plenty of research showing that certain types of chronic and traumatic stress, particularly when you add that to ways of thinking, ways of coping and other psychological or social factors can increase your risk of stuff you don't want, right? So that's all real. But also it turns out that, you know, people who take a more accepting attitude towards stress, like it's a part of life, and if you're going to have a meaningful life, you're going to experience stress, they seem to be more resilient. They seem to be better able to cope with life's challenges. We know that there are ways of um, responding to stress that can actually make your stress response healthier. Like if you have, um, sometimes called like a pro-social response to stress, where part of how you deal with stress is you seek out support and you also look for ways to help other people and you remember that whatever you're going through, you're not alone and you're not the only one, that can actually transform what's happening in your body from something that is immune suppressant or bad for your heart health into a physiological state that is good for your heart health and does not suppress your immune system. So there's all this like interesting research that says if your life is stressful, it's okay. And even if it's the kind of stress you wouldn't choose for yourself, it's the suffering kind of stress. There are still ways of thinking and acting and relating to yourself and to others that can bring out the best in you during stress so that the consequences include things like like post-stress growth and deeper relationships with others and a greater sense of your own strength and even um, physical well-being. So that's that's sort of the, the flip in thinking about it. Um, yeah. And now I'm, I'm like, I'm really interested in the practical how to do that. I'm actually, I'm much less interested in the intellectual arguments about it, like piling up the papers, stress is bad, stress is good. Wait, oh, there's one more on the stress is bad pile. That means we can, no, it's, you know, it's all there. Well, this, um, I, I always promise, to, sorry to interrupt you. I always promise to be practical. And so I, while I may be interested intellectually in some of those other, uh, you know, the white papers, what is this how does this translate into what what does someone what behaviors does someone change if they want to maximize the the what i don't know for lack of a better word eustress factors and you know minimize the the distress factors how, yeah. how how ought we think about that and what are some very practical applications for um making change I find the best way to come up with practical strategies is to look at what are really helpful and skillful stress responses. So one of the biggest changes in how we think about stress is that we no longer think of stress as fight or flight or fright. This idea that whenever you're stressed, it's a the same physiological state, heart rate up, flooded with stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol, um, spike in your immune system that long-term goes down. There's like There's a story we've all been told about what stress is. And it's that fight or flight. So we actually know you've got a whole repertoire of stress responses. One of them is a challenge response, which is basically rising to the challenge. It's like being the hero in your own story. It's different in your body. It has different emotions, including emotions like confidence and hope. Um, And 
that is a type of stress response that really allows people to be brave, to bring their best self to performance situations, um, and to learn and grow in really interesting ways from stressful experiences. So we know that that's one way of responding to stress that is healthy, to rise to the challenge, to go after your goals, to take action um, rather than avoid or retreat or try to calm down. Another really helpful stress response is the social stress response that usually looks like a combination of getting support from other people and also looking for ways to continue to contribute and serve. It's it's like a really interesting balance because people don't like to be a victim. People often don't like to be a burden either. And so sometimes when we're stressed out, we don't want to ask for help because it doesn't feel comfortable. And so there's this way of responding to stress that really is, it's no longer just about you. It's about finding ways to give back while you also open yourself up to the help and support of others. So we can look at that as a strategy. And then the last strategy is sometimes referred to as uh, resilience, sometimes referred to as growth. But it's this really interesting observation that when you are in a situation that your brain understands is an opportunity to change based on how life actually is, right, to, to adapt. You create this whole chemistry in your brain and body that says, let's learn. Let's learn, let's change so that we are ready for tomorrow and what comes next. Uh, it's just kind of like heightened plasticity. And we know that when you are in that heightened state of change, looking for ways to grow or change that are consistent with your values, that would make you proud of yourself, um, like to take charge of that part of the narrative that even if you didn't choose the stress you're going through, like your business fell apart or you're going through cancer treatment, whatever it is, you didn't choose it. But like now you understand this is part of my story and I get to play an active role in how this experience changes me because I'm in a moment of heightened readiness to learn and change. I'm going to choose it. I'm not going to let the story only be I'm a failure or life is unfair, or I'm afraid it's it's also going to be however else you want to learn and grow. So these are three responses that are built into your biology. Everyone's got them. We're not always good at harnessing all of them. I mean, there are others as well, but those are the three primary ones that I often talk about and teach. And so when we're being practical, then it comes down to, okay, in this moment of stress, does one of these responses seem like it might be useful? Or is there one that I'm really not leveraging well in my life? Like for me, I will make meaning and learn and grow all day long, no matter what. But the one I, the other two I've had to work on much more because my instinct when I am stressed is to retreat. Like I want to go back into my cave and think about it or avoid the pain or discomfort, protect myself. I've had to work really hard at developing a challenge response through things like exercise and things like a music playlist that makes me feel like a warrior rather than uh, just somebody who runs and hides. Um, same thing with the, the asking for help and looking for ways to, to receive other people's support, work really hard on that um, through like even very practical things like learning to text other people when I'm going through something stressful rather than refuse to answer people's texts, which mm. maybe some other people have that coping strategy too. Like when you're stressed and you start to disconnect from people, really practical strategy is find a way to connect, even if you're not asking for help but to keep those channels of connection open. So mm. for any one of those, like, is there one that you recognize as a coping strategy that you don't use as 
as easily or as effectively as you might want to of those three? Well, rather than talking about me specifically, okay. I'm going to, but I mean, I think I'm not going to be alone here. I'm, I think okay. I'm going to capture. Let's talk generally. I'm going to, well, okay, fine. We can talk about me too. Um, this is going to be personal. No, my, I find that third one, the ability to think about this is a learning opportunity. Mm -hmm. To me, that aligns with one of my core values is growth. And so I also, while I try to move to that as often as, and as quickly as possible, and when asked, I try and coach others to do the same or, and you know, when I advise friends who are struggling or, you know, people in this community. And yet what I find is that there's an awareness issue because you have to be aware enough in the moment to be able to pause, look at the problem saying, this is a problem. And mm -hmm. now I'm going to seek to learn. What can I do to put myself in a learning environment? Now, without knowing my past, I started an online learning platform, got tens of millions of people using the thing. It was recently acquired. So that I look at that as a past chapter for me, but I realize that I am still obsessed with learning, growth, development. So if we do focus now for a moment on this third, mm -hmm. this learning component, how do you recognize that you're eating a poop emoji right now and you need to find a way to learn from it. Yeah. So the reason that I often talk about mindsets is that the best way to be able to do this is to decide that this is a way that you want to engage with life. So first you have to even just choose it as a value like you talked about to think I want to react to the stress in my life as someone who can learn and grow and change and play an active role in how how life changes me. So when you make that decision, then it's often really helpful to start to um, think, well, if that were true, what would I pay attention to? What mental routines or habits would I engage with? And then you, you have to actually start practicing those. So there's research on um, resilience and, and growth and learning as a mindset. The, the things that you need to think about or do to really strengthen that, that mental habit one is actually paying attention to other people's stories of positive growth and change. Like you become a detective for it. You're interested in it. You're listening for it. You are asking people about it. Um, like it's something you're trying to uncover in the world. Um, we know that hearing other people's stories of resilience or post-traumatic growth or adversity, you know, uh, uh, learning from adversity, that when we are primed with other people's stories, it it makes you more likely to experience it yourself. So that's part of it is paying attention. Also, telling your own stories. So, you know, when I first started doing this work, I had a chance to start telling stories about things I hadn't even realized that how much I had learned from the most stressful experiences of, of my life. Um, because I just, I hadn't, I hadn't created a narrative for myself. And so, for example, I would start to talk about what I'd learned from the experience of chronic pain. And it was so interesting in, in just having to think about it. Well, okay, that is definitely... So the way that a psychologist might do it is say, what's one of the most stressful things you've ever gone through in life? You can think of a few. For me, experiencing chronic pain for most of my life was one of them. And just ask, ask yourself, well, how did that experience change me in ways that I value? Or what have I learned from that? And for me, I realized that uh, having chronic pain meant... I look out at other people and I don't assume that they're happy. I know that you can have invisible suffering. And that has actually been an insight that has allowed me to connect 
to help and to feel less alone in a way that's really profound. I didn't even realize how many people were walking around the world looking out there, assuming everyone else was really happy and healthy. And like, it's just me who's suffering on the inside. So that's another type of practice is to craft your own stories that are true and real and like look for an opportunity to share them. Because we also know that when you have a past experience of learning from failure or stress, first of all, it helps you when you're in the middle of a new challenge. It's like a a resource. It's an inoculation. It makes you feel more capable of handling whatever you're going through now, even if you can't make sense of it. And then um, another thing is like when you're right in the middle of it, there are certain questions that seem to help people um, find this mindset in ways that are really useful. My favorite question has been, how is this moment a turning point? Like, Like right now or today or this week or this crisis that just occurred. And actually imagine that it's like 10 years from now and you're telling the story about this time in your life. And like this moment was the turning point. Isn't that interesting? Well, what did you do? Why was it the turning point? What action did you take? How did you change your perspective? And to come up with that story, it often gives us both a sense of self-confidence and optimism, but also some real insight. So those are a few examples of that. Um, And finding people in your life who are willing to talk to you about it, obviously. Friends, family, colleagues, experts that you have to pay by the hour, whatever you need. Two I want to excavate two things there. One, narrative. I'm a huge fan, proponent, advocate for creating a personal narrative. You talked about that. Um, I'm going to say the second one so I don't get distracted. But help us understand, you used this idea of now as a turning point. And as a very practical matter, are you then saying, cool, let's write the narrative? Or is this generally about positive self-talk and learning to that if you don't write your own story, somebody else is going to write it for you. So you might as well write an epic novel or whatever. Yeah, how, I mean, how do you, how do you think about it? It's both. It's all of that. Um, I, I feel like the most useful answers to that type of question are going to either be value related. Like people will think, well, if this was going to be a turning point, what it, it will be a turning point because it will make me realize that what I care about most is blah and what I don't care about is blah. Right. It was an mm-hmm. opportunity for me to choose this thing that matters. That so sometimes that's the clarity that comes. Mm-hmm. And then it's not necessarily an action, but it's then something you carry with you. So that each if that were the turning point, let's say that I realize that I'm going to start putting family first, then every day when you're you're going through life, you're going to have an awareness of that value. And every day becomes an opportunity to choose it and strengthen that narrative. Um Another way that it can work is you, someone who's really action oriented. If this was a turning point, there was a behavior that changed and there were steps that I took to get where I want to be. And I'm a big believer in the dot, 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 uh, like vision for your life. So you, maybe you imagine 10 years from now yourself in a different place looking back and you are where you are now and you're not sure what that dot, dot, dot is. Just like pick a dot close to where you are. And just take a little leap. And so for some people, it's going to be really action-oriented. So what's one thing that you could do today, one thing you could do tomorrow, that is consistent with this vision that you have for yourself? And uh, this is true for all of behavior change. That that dot, dot, dot model really works as long as you can take a a first leap. Um, Sometimes, and I know we're not talking specifically about behavior change, but there's an example I like to give because it 
for most people, it's very surprising. And it's research looking at how to help people quit smoking, which is one of the hardest behavior changes to make for many reasons. And there's research that if you can delay the first cigarette of the day by five minutes, that is a significant change that increases. You make that commitment, you are on your way to quitting, even though it's really hard for people to understand how could that be? Like literally, instead of having my first cigarette 20 minutes after I wake up, I have it 25 minutes. I didn't even smoke fewer cigarettes today, but there's something about that first, you made a choice that reminds you of what your goal is, and you did one thing that's consistent with it, and then dot, dot, dot. So. Mm. Well, my second thing was okay. action. Was action. Yeah. So we're, we're, you're right on it. And I have written at length about the, the concept that I talk about is action over intellect. We, we live in our heads so much trying to decide what the perfect action is, when the right action should be, you know, what should I do? I should do X instead of Y instead of just, and this is an, also a segue into your, your, uh, the work you've done on movement, but yeah. the idea of taking action out in the world and you need, you need a response from the universe. Like you need an actual reality change. I'm a hundred percent with you, even being a psychologist. So the way that you think primes you to act differently. It's why I'm, I'm interested in things like say something to yourself, like I've got this, but then you actually have to go do something. You're a hundred percent right. And the mm. reason action is so important is action is what it creates prompts in the world to create something, whether it's relationships with people or information that you need or physical changes in your body, whatever it is. So, uh, yes. And then, but often people, there, there are little like mindset tricks you can do to help you take action. So it's, uh, yeah, well, oh. give me, give me, give me a couple of mindset things. Well, I got, I mentioned music and yeah. It is so interesting yeah. how underappreciated music is as a psychological intervention. If you actually, if you were trying to change someone's mood and help them do something hard, you would be hard pressed to find anything more effective than a song that they like. Mm. Um, uh, and it's a personal thing. It's not like I have the song that makes everyone willing to do hard things and feel amazing about themselves, but you probably know what your songs are and I got my songs. So um and I think that that's, that's one of the, you know, when we're interested in supporting ourselves to look for those things in the world that make you feel like who you want to be. Um, mm. yeah. Well, that's what, you know, you go to a Tony Robbins as a friend and guest on the show, previous guest on the show, all of his stuff is rooted in, you know, in moving your body in music, music to pump you up and put yeah. you in a different mindset. And this is very much about state. Like how yes. can you get in a psychological and emotional and a physical state? Sometimes, yeah. you know, one may beget the other. And are you a fan of basically, I think the way Tony would talk about it is throw everything in the kitchen sink at it, move your body, listen to some music, like tell yourself some positive aphorisms. Right. Are, are you more clinical and that you should do A and then B no. and C? Or is no. it- no, and for many reasons. First of all, right. So I call it the state change. And a lot of us need to learn how to change our state so that we can act in ways that are consistent with our goals and values. So you can be exhausted. You can be afraid. You can be uh, you know, stressed out. And, and there's another version of you that doesn't need to fix and get rid of all that stuff. So I'm a big fan of state changes that are not about removing the barrier, but about producing the inner strength you need to do whatever it is you want to do. Um, which sounds very similar to what you were talking about. So mm-hmm. I'm much less likely to recommend, say, a breathing technique designed to really calm you down and make you feel nothing because you feel like 
your anxiety is getting in the way of doing something. I'm a much more fan of listening to the music that makes you feel brave. The anxiety will either resolve itself or it gets to come along. But the courage is what's going to let you actually do it. You don't need mm. to suppress the anxiety first. Um, or whether it's a, you know something you say to yourself or a physical exercise. Like, and there are different states. So I did this great... Um, this uh, great workout series that use movements that are associated with happiness and joy. And one of them is like just reaching up and looking up. That's like a kind of a, a state change that you can make to go from looking at your device or looking inward, just look out and look up, right? There are physical postures that you can take that can be a state change or movement or sending a supportive text to somebody is, is a really interesting quick state change. So there's studies showing that if somebody has to go do something stressful for themselves, like like performance stress, going into a meeting, a negotiation, um, and instead of trying to calm down or even pump themselves up, they think of someone in their own life who maybe could use a, a cheerful or supportive message, and they text them. That thinking about somebody else gives you this little boost of hope and confidence that is a physical state change and then allows you to go in and perform better. So that's another example. But yeah, the, the thing is, it's not even so much about throwing everything at it as in being uh, curious about what moves you. Mm. So all of these studies that anyone might mention, if you look at the data, there are some people for whom it works really well. Some people, it moves the needle a little bit in a helpful way. Some people, not so much. And some people, it did not work. You have to treat all of these things that you hear people like me say or anyone else, treat it like an experiment you have to do on yourself um, and use your direct experience as data that, that guide you. This, I want to um, reference your book here. This is The Upside of Stress, Why Stress is Good for You and How to Get Good at It. That was from, I don't know, seven something years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, I refreshed myself. I read it right when it came out. I've refreshed myself since then. And it seems like it's just getting more and more. It's like you had an idea a long time ago that was very powerful. And now it is starting to become mainstream. This, these ideas that we're yeah. talking about here were four and five years ago. And now the idea of leaning into your stress of trying to think of that feeling in your body. Now we, we've talked with other guests and uh, and in micro shows that I share with the audience uh, on a weekly basis about doing a body scan, like mm -hmm. what is that? Is that a tightness in your chest? And rather than saying, oh gosh, tightness in chest equals bad, bad equals stress, stress equals, uh, you know, I have performance anxiety. Instead of saying like, wow, this means that I've got an opportunity here to do something great. That's what that feeling is in my chest or my gut. You've this, how do you, um, reconcile in your work the fact that we have one feeling uh, in our body it feels the same as two different kind of like you know you have to have a tough conversation you get that pit in your stomach yeah. also you're about to go you know um present this idea that you've been excited to share with with the world or your colleagues or a client and you have a similar feeling i know how, it's how interesting so there, uh, I have so many thoughts about that. They are similar. There's also a lot of um, distinction among these emotional states and somatic states. And some people are better at noticing that than others. For some people, it all kind of feels the same. And for when people say it all feels the same, it usually it feels bad and I don't want it. Um, 
So there are a couple of things that I do. One is I have seen repeatedly in studies as well as in my own life and in helping people that when there are multiple interpretations for physical sensations, the interpretation you make is going to push you in a direction that's either helpful or not helpful. Now, it's not the case that in every situation there are multiple interpretations. If you're having an actual heart attack, you cannot spin that into excitement, right? But if you are having ordinary levels of anxiety in the sense that your heart rate is increasing, you are sweating, you are either breathing more rapidly or you just you notice changes in your breathing, um, that can be interpreted as getting ready to rise to the occasion and rise to the challenge, or it can be interpreted as a threat response that right now uh, I'm not safe or I'm not prepared and I need to escape or I need to defend myself. They are very similar physiologically, but what happens is if you're in that state where you're not like on the ground in a full-on panic attack or having an actual clinical heart attack, it's the much more common experience of uncomfortable stress and anxiety. And you say, well, my heart is pounding. That means there's more energy available. I'm sweating. I'm feeling this muscle tension. That means there's adrenaline in my body and probably also dopamine and also cortisol, which helps you use energy. I, if I'm feeling these things, I know these things are true. My body can use that energy. It's available to me now and I can harness it. What's interesting is what's happening in your body starts to change in a way that supports that story. And so you actually end up getting more adrenaline, but a little bit less cortisol in a way that makes your stress response healthier. You get some other chemicals uh, you know, at higher levels like DHEA and um, these uh, neurosteroids that help your brain learn and grow from stressful experiences. So you, the interpretation you make starts to change what's happening in your body in a way that supports a healthier response. Um, when I, some of the, so some of the ways that I like to interpret it at a much more uh, fine grain level, if I notice my heart pounding, I will say to myself, my heart is in this. It's true. And it's true whether I am nervous, afraid, excited, passionate, uh, if I feel my heart pounding, I will say my heart is in it because I have learned that recognizing that I care is a strength and that can show up sometimes as anxiety and sometimes it shows up as enthusiasm. Uh, but what I've learned is if I'm in a state where I care, I can use it, even if what it feels like is anxiety. Um, another, uh, there's another, it's actually the, um, if you open the stress book, the little quote at the beginning of the book is one of the things that I've loved, which is if you have butterflies in your stomach, invite them into your heart, which is this idea. Again, it connects to me, this idea that sometimes we get digestive sensations because we care. Like your gut is constantly looking for signs of meaning and we feel a lot of things in our gut. And a lot of times when you're about to do something that is meaningful, your digestive system will decide to have a purge or a cleanse or something like that, you know, or it doesn't always feel comfortable. But I have found it has helped a lot of people who could not control it and were like taking drugs and stuff to try to control it that were not helping them go out and perform their best to just be like, all right, the butterflies are in my stomach. I had my pre-performance cleanse as needed. <laughs> and I'm now inviting those butterflies into my heart. I'm ready to show up and give my best. 
And there, you know, there are other ways to interpret physical symptoms. But again, the thing I want to highlight is these are choices we make. It doesn't really work when someone else tells you to do it. And um, one of the things that I learned early on, so somebody who's experienced clinical anxiety, which is a little different than just ordinary anxiety, I really rejected this research. It was coming out of the laboratory I was working in. And I kept thinking, there, there's no way these people have real anxiety. <laughs> like they're just, they're not anxious enough. If they were actually truly anxious, they would know anxiety is always horrible. You have to get rid of it. This is not healthy. My heart rate is a thousand and nine. Like, and we were actually studying people with anxiety disorders. I just, I, I had to learn through my own experience that this stuff works even for levels of anxiety that, that can feel very disruptive in your life. Is it, I'm going to try and simplify the last 90 seconds. Is it as simple as the story that I tell myself about how I'm feeling actually drives physiological change in my body? Yeah. So that is absolutely true. Although it is, you know, I always like to put it in a reality check. It's that we have, we have influence over things that are also true. So it's like, you know, so when I, um, one of my favorite workouts is a high intensity workout called grit. And I love it because it drives my heart rate higher than anything else I've ever done. And I love how it feels in the period of exhaustion near the very end of the workout where my heart is like pounding out of my rib cage. And it's like, I'm breathing not on purpose. Like, like life is doing CPR on me. It's such a funny feeling. It's like, (gasps) and, um, this feels to me like panic. I had only ever felt that way in moments of sheer terror. And when I realized in the workout that I was lying on the floor and I was thinking, what's happening right now? This is literally the sensation of my heart getting stronger because I understand the context. I literally just did something that made my heart stronger and this is what it feels like. That I started being able to tell that story in moments of anxiety that were not that was not exactly what was happening in that moment. My heart was pounding because I was scared. But I could say to myself, this is the feeling of my heart getting stronger and I could choose to be brave. And then that will release oxytocin, will balance the cortisol and the DHEA, keep giving me adrenaline so that I can rise to the challenge, um, open my blood vessels so that you know I don't have high blood pressure. These are real changes that happen when you make these choices. But again, it's because there's truth to them. And so you have to find the story that feels real and meaningful to you. There's a reason that that one works so well for me is because courage is one of my values. So I don't want to make it seem like it's as simple as just saying, oh, stress is good for me. Got it. Or, oh, I'm just, I'm just excited. Like it's not nerves. I'm just really excited about this. That's, <laughs> that's the one there's a lot of research on. I found some people really reject that strongly because like, this is not excitement. <laughs> um, you have to find the story that resonates deeply with you. Uh, and that is, that is when all of the biological and psychological changes you're harnessing. It's like your own best self. This, this is why I defer go back to the three things that we talked about a while ago. This is one of the reasons that I go directly to this is, this is a lovely test. I'm going to get stronger from this. I'm going to Mm -hmm. learn. I'm going to grow because I can trick myself out of the other ones, but I don't have the experience in my life of going through something and not feeling like I'm even 1% smarter on the other side of that thing. 
So it seems to be to be always true for me. That's one of the reasons I run to that one. And it's pretty effective when you're in the moment. Yes. You know, you got this, your heart's pounding. You're like, whatever the outcome, I'm coming out this stronger. This is like a workout for my, yep. my, my human right here. Let's do and this. And that's, you know, one of the studies that I wrote about in that book seven <laughs> years ago. Like I literally had to write to the scientist, Ali Crum. I was like, have you published it yet? Have you published it yet? Can I put it in my book? And she had like just barely released the data and I was able to squeeze it in. But now this is a much more uh, well-recognized finding is that when you tell yourself that you can learn from a stressful experience, that there can be these positive outcomes like growth, um, it changes the the growth index of your stress response, which is a, like a biological signature of how likely you are to actually grow from the experience. It's kind of neat. You can measure mm-hmm. that through stress hormones and the like the cocktail that's in your bloodstream during stress. So you can actually increase that growth index by telling yourself this is an opportunity to learn and grow. Mm-hmm. All right. So many of the things that we've been talking about now are especially the things that are coming out of your mouth are like, I love this workout. When my heart is pounding after this, I feel like this, which is a simple and brilliant segue into the joy of movement, which is your most recent book. Now, I think to some in our audience, the the physical nature of um, work or working out or, you know, this, this show is not about sports performance or it's not about CrossFit and yet, as a lifelong athlete, I'm always talking about the value of movement. Um, and one of the things I was most excited about having on, you on the show for was this correlation between moving your body, the ability to manage your own psychology, how they're related, the feelings in your body, et cetera. So what you've essentially been talking about over the last you know, 10 or 15 minutes here is the sensations in the body. But let's talk about proactively moving your body rather than as a response to these other things. How do we, how ought we think about movement as an essential piece of our growth and health? Yeah. So, you know, you can, you can go at this from so many different angles. At, it's most essential if you're interested in brain health, mental health, flourishing, Physical activity is as important as sleep and eating and having some kind of social integration or connection. It is, it is just so essential. When you are regularly physically active, you are living in a different type of body with a different brain than if you are less active or sedentary. Neurochemically? Neurochemically, yeah, but physiologically. So for example, one of the the things that's come out the last 10 years that I found so exciting is the um, observation that your muscles are an endocrine organ and your muscles manufacture all these different molecules that they store in muscle fibers and they release them into your bloodstream when you're physically active. And if you aren't physically active, they don't release them into your bloodstream. And these are chemicals that boost your immune function, regulate your blood sugar, increase bone health, kill cancer cells. And also many of these chemicals travel to your brain where they support memory and learning and emotion regulation and stress resilience. Some of them work as antidepressants. Some of them work to um, defeat anxiety. The thing that like, so the thing I tell people that often blows their mind is that lactate or lactic acid, that metabolic byproduct of uh, any type of physical activity, that actually is an anti-anxiety uh, molecule. And wow. so when you work your muscles to the point where they're producing this metabolic byproduct, 
basically just means you have to exert yourself. You exert yourself, you're pumping into your bloodstream, something that can cross the blood-brain barrier and act on your brain in ways that make you more resilient to stress. So it just the difference between somebody who is maybe active in sort of general ways for several hours of the day or intensely active once a day, some combination of like asking your muscles to do stuff, you have a completely different physiological reality. You have this pharmacy that's supporting you in every possible way. And as a psychologist, I'm just super interested in the fact that it has such a big effect on your brain health and your mental health, but it's every system of your body. So that's one way to think about it. But the other thing is this this more psychological way, which is that um, when you look at what people do when they are choosing to be active, right? So it's not labor, but I am choosing to engage in an activity for some reason. The things that people choose to do are almost always rooted in some core human joy, like competition or cooperation, celebration, social connection, challenge, being in nature, connecting to music, which is one of my favorite ones, play, right? It's people are choosing to do movements that connect them to something essential about how human beings survive and thrive. We need these connections to this part of what it means to be human, to, to flourish, particularly when life is hard. It's why when the, during the initial COVID lockdown, there were a couple of things that were really powerful predictors of people's mental health when they couldn't rely on other things like, like deep social connection with a lot of people. And exercise was like one of the absolute biggest. If you can move your body, if you can stay engaged in an activity that puts you in touch with nature or continues to make you feel like you're improving and learning and growing, or gives you an opportunity to play, or music. It's actually funny. They were the two big ones. Exercise and music were the two things that helped people through. Wow. But, well, this is explaining a lot. Oh, <laughs> uh, again, personal personal story here. So um, golf is a weird sport. I played as a young person because I worked at a golf course. It was the only thing in the suburban world that I lived in that was walkable where I could have a job. And then when I went to college, um, I said, wow, I don't have time for golf. I was playing soccer. And then after college, I was poor. And then when I wasn't poor, I was like, golf is a dumb game. Bunch of like overweight, you know, white dudes just chasing a ball around. What a exclusive sport, blah, blah. And I, t- I told myself all these different things. And I didn't golf for 27 years. I'm giving away my age here. I'm 108. The, the, the thing that when COVID happened, what I was like, there's literally nothing else to do, especially when I'm up in Seattle where the, pl- the the pandemic hit first and hardest. I I started golfing again and I went outside. It was something you could, it was one of the only things you could do with friends because you could be 10 feet away. In fact, you're usually further away than that. We would listen to music and move our bodies. Mm-hmm. We're walking the, and, and you just basically named yeah. four four of these things that it provided this really strange and stable um, foundation for me through COVID. I, I, again, went from not playing for 27 years for all those reasons that I mentioned before to like, huh, this is not so bad. In fact, I feel okay and I want to keep doing this at a minimum once a week. So, See, I love this. And like, here, can we like highlight for a moment the two things that we've just talked about? This is my cat who wants – he's like – Remember, you wanted to talk about cats. She, she came by <laughs> to remind you. Um, oh, I haven't forgotten. I've got my notes right here. <laughs> but so we have just talked about two extremely different things. One okay. is that 
any type of exercise and also intensity increases this effect. So like exertion, use your body, sweat, do hard things, get your heart rate up. It's just physiologically, it is opening up the pharmacy, right? So it is a biological, it's just like a lever you can pull and all activity works. And, you know, it's, it's really about the using your body, but then we've got this whole other like deeply rich psychological and social experience where we're talking about the things that are healing and sustaining and life affirming. Um, and you figure out what those are based on your, just your direct experience. And what's so great about movement is it like, it all works when you pay attention in that way. So you pay attention to what brings you joy or meaning. You spend time in the places that inspire you by yourself or with people, depending on what you need. And uh, when you can, do something that's hard enough that you know that it's hard, right? That's the, the intensity is an interesting thing that I really learned from the research for that book. It, it was something that I, I had experienced in my own life, but I guess I, was, I wasn't sure I was ready to commit to talking about it because I didn't want to discourage people. Like people really want to hear that intensity doesn't matter. People really want to hear that. <laughs> right. um, and yet the research is really clear, particularly if you're going after mental health benefits. And that's a reason why people who are dealing with, with you know, in, in my book, it's often you know, people with grief, trauma, severe depression or mental health challenges, um, people who are in recovery, they are often drawn to the super intense workouts because it's like medicine. Um, so I, during COVID, that was a change that I experienced in that, that beginning period that was so isolating. I got a heavy kickboxing bag for my driveway and, and I started doing, uh, high intensity interval training more often too, because I needed to feel alive instead of depressed. Yeah. So powerful. And okay. So right now I feel like we've given people a handful of, we've, we've talked about physicality. We've talked about the stories we tell ourselves. We talked about how, you know, action over and not, you have to do things rather than just think things. You can't think your way, um, you know, out of this, you have to run little experiments. You know, we, mm -hmm. we've, I, I think set up a framework. One of the things that, that is, um, especially relevant to this community and relates to everything we've talked about is your word. Now you have, I want to talk about two different words and you can explain the context for my question around word here, but mm -hmm. the most, one of the most recent ones, I think the most recent one was create. And that is obviously very relevant to this audience who identifies. <laughs> That's what I thought creative. it was going to be. And I changed it to perform. Okay. Perform. It was create. So I talk about the difference between why I shifted. Okay. Let's hear it. Right. Yeah, this is so the this first is, time you're talking about this. Am I, yeah, am I wrong? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, this this thing I've been doing for a long, long time, encouraging people to choose a word for the year um, that describes what you want to give your energy and attention to, something that'll be like an anchor when you want to come back to what the vision that you have for this year. It's just, it's it's a really useful, I found it really useful. And uh, often it's something like a value or it's a direction to move in. And uh, I thought, well, create, because I was like, I was really feeling I'd done a lot of emergency responding and survival for the previous couple of years. And I wanted to like go back into a place where I felt like I was producing something new and original 
and using, you know, my strengths and, and I wanted to like be in the middle of something again. And I thought the word create would do that because I, I was thinking, well, maybe I'll start my next book or I'll, you know, develop some new program that I'm going to develop. Um, but over the first couple of months, I found that I, I couldn't, I couldn't figure out where the energy was with that. And then I came across somebody had defined a performer as somebody who brings ideas and insights to life using the full expression of their physical being. I thought, yes, that's what I want to do. I want to use the full expression of my physical self, not here. And it's when I am at my best I'm so embodied. You can even see like I gesture. I don't like I can't even have an idea without it wanting to come out through my body in some way. Um, and it's why I teach dance and why it's my that's my favorite form of movement to teach because it's just one big performance, not like for applause, but it's like taking a song and an emotion and fully physically expressing it through every part of my body and being and letting other people do that. So when I made that the choice, what was really great is I, I love this idea of a performer as being somebody who's just engaging with life through my body. And it, it allowed me, you'd talked about the importance of taking action versus just like thinking to yourself. And I love this idea that uh, of wanting to say yes to things that asked me to show up and that also I had that feeling of aliveness while I was doing it. And it's helped me also think about what is the next book I want to write, which is very cerebral. But I realize I want to write a book that when I'm talking about it, I'm going to get to perform mm -hmm. as opposed to be, you know, only uh, intellectual in my head. So th All that right. was my word. That's beautiful. And I would like to try and um, sew a little tapestry here. Okay. So my, you're so interesting. How you're like you're saying a whole bunch of stuff. Now I'm gonna make yeah, it useful no, for my audience. Now, <laughs> yeah, but, but I, I like uh, I, there's a selfish aspect. It. Okay, there's a selfish aspect here too, which is the so we've got all these different things we've been talking about. And when I hear you talk about your love for dance, I know you're gonna teach a dance class. We gotta make sure to get mm -hmm. you out of here on time. You're gonna teach a dance class, and dance is like you've written a book on movement, you've talked about how music pumps you up, you've talked about all these things. And what I hear when I when you describe that is I've looked, this is Kelly speaking, I'm gonna to pretend to be you for a second. I, I'm looking back in my past, and there are things that I know light me up. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to combine them in a thing and I'm going to do that thing because I know I like music, I like movement, I like dance. And lo and behold, when I do those things, I feel great. I get this cocktail of emotions and this physiological set of you know, hormones and this chemistry going and awesome. So a friend of yes. mine wrote a book. Okay, go ahead. Oh, wait, wait. Let me just add one thing to that. The missing Please. piece is that also when I do it, I see it relieve suffering, not just for myself, for myself and for others. Like I, it's, it's the difference between teaching a, a group dance class for people who otherwise might be very isolated, which is one of the things that I do. People who like maybe the only time they're interacting with other people is in my dance class. It's really important that I'm doing that and I'm not on stage dancing. It is the, I want to create communities and share ideas 
that are not only in that moment pleasurable, but like that meaningfully make people feel less alone and more hopeful about life. Mm. Uh, so that's the other ingredient. And that's that that's the thing that I I look for that as my reality check. Well, there's that that's the connection piece. Is that yeah. fair to say? Or, yeah. Okay. So this, and contribution. Okay. Connection and contribution. Where I'm going with this is is it fair to offer a prescription to our listeners and watchers today? to encourage them to look into their past, to find the sort of the Venn diagram of things that excite them and put a date, put something on the calendar and then go do that thing. And I'll give you an example. I want to ask Mm -hmm. this, I'm going to give you an example and then say, is this, is this a reasonable prescription? And then, then I want your feedback there. So another friend of mine named Charlie wrote a book called play it away, which was, he was dealing with severe anxiety and burnout. And he used to like to hit baseballs as a kid go to the batting cage and so as an adult he went and bought 50 baseballs and he and a friend would go to a field you know pitch each other balls they would hit them all over the field and then they would together walk and go pick them up so there's movement and exercise and and he's like like do that for an hour every other day and my world was just completely different now i have a set of those things and i'm you know we've heard from you that you have dance and music and connection all these things is it fair to say that a prescription would be Look into your past, or you can tell us where to look. What are things that you enjoy, and how can you spend zero, ten, fifty, hundred dollars? Set yourself up for this, and then go do this, and see how you feel. Yeah, I mean, you can think of it as spending money or spending time, right? Yeah, whatever your whatever resources. But most people like I want to just get out of your own way and allow yourself the freedom. Yes, choose joy. Joy is a fundamental resource for life. The thing, if I'm making the prescription, you do that, and also you find that thing that's a value related to contribution or challenge. Right? Mm. I think like that's that's the really good balance. If you were only spending your life doing things that brought you joy as a child and are fun to do now, but it wasn't fueling something else that you also feel like is a meaningful role in your life, whatever that is, a challenge or contribution, uh, it gets a little bit, it's not balanced. For most people, they're going to get a different type of joy from the hard stuff, Mm -hmm. but it's really unsustainable to only do the challenge and the contribution if you don't have these more direct yeah. Simple joys. That's why like, for a lot of people it's movement because it does put you in nature or let you compete or let you play or let you whatever and express yourself. Um, but I think that's a great prescription. And the okay. other prescription that I often will recommend to people, which is a question most people don't ask themselves and has to do with that contribution side. What's a kind of pain or suffering that doesn't freak you out? And this is when you're thinking about starting a business or volunteering that or choosing a career. Um, I have found that most people, there's some kind of pain or suffering that they're comfortable enough around that Mm. they don't add to the pain or suffering when they're with it. You know, like there are people who are so overwhelmed by other people's anxiety. They should not be around people whose primary suffering is anxiety. They'll just add to it. And there's some people, it's just fine. Some people's physical pain and suffering. Some people are so like, oh, disgusted. Oh, I can't handle this. Other people, it's just fine. For some people, it's trauma. It's And I think that it's, um, or addiction, right? There's going to be a type, it's not always the type of suffering that you yourself have gone through. Sometimes it is and sometimes it's not. 
But that's an interesting question that can provide a lot of guidance for folks when they're looking for that that other piece. Mm, um, because great, your yeah. presence and your ability to like not be surprised or overwhelmed by that particular problem or struggle is this amazing strength that you could bring. Love that. That's definitely going in the show open right there. A question that you should ask yourself that most people don't. Uh, I wonder what that is for me. I'm going to do some homework. I'm going to do yeah, some, do some inside, some inside work after this. I knew I had to get some homework from you. Um, okay. One way to think about it too, if someone's interested in that seriously is what's a situation that you're good in that other people are not good in. Um, you know, I, I found out early on that I was really good at just being relaxed around people with mental illness. Like it just didn't surprise me, whatever they do or say, uh, in situations where other people like in volunteer situations would be panicking or angry. She's like, that's fine. Huh. Well, well, that's that's fine. Wow, that's a very fascinating one. Um, <laughs> man, we, I'm not, I'm not going to open up that. That's a whole other topic. That's, that's, <laughs> okay. that's that's for the next show. Um, we've really talked at length about the upside of stress. We've talked about the joy of movement. Um, I think we, we have talk- just enough time left for cats. Yeah, this is where I'm going. Like we, there, um, I shared with you earlier. Longtime cat person, uh, new dog owner, seeing the difference has been totally fascinating, both fun, different. Um, you, though, are a, um, I would, you, you have some fancy uh, vernacular to place on it, but I'm going to say you're a cat psychologist. Uh, <laughs> you tell me what, you're, what you really are, but I will say a pet psychologist, but you specifically over index on cats and what can you tell us about these felines that both we're, we're unsure if they love or hate us? Um, they are amazing for some, uh, annoying for other humans. Like, yeah. wh- wh- tell us about cats. There's a lot so of cat people. I, I out there love the idea know. that I'm a cat psychologist. I'm, I'm <laughs> trained by two different rescue agencies uh, to help adopt out cats. It's like a, an adoption specialist, so I get to use my human psychology too um, to help matchmake. Yes. And because cats, you know, are lots of different personalities. You got to get the, whether you want the cuddle bug or the sidekick or the person who's just going to amuse you all day when you watch them do ridiculous things. Um, that's the party animal. Um, so the way that I, so the thing that I find most interesting about cats is that's different from dogs is cats have, it's, it's humans too. I like cats because they're like humans. Human beings have these competing instincts. We trust people. We don't trust people. We want immediate gratification. We're interested in our long-term well-being. Um, we are selfish and we're caring, whatever. Like There are all of these competing instincts. Um, cats are like that too, but in one like big split. They are either fiercely independent, solitary creatures who can spend their entire lives with like no social relationships, pure survival. That's most cats in the wild. Or they can become completely interdependent with human beings in the most loving and caring and attentive way. And it is almost entirely determined by the quality of attention that you pay to them. That whether you are able to watch a cat with this listening presence to try to understand what it wants and how it wants you to be in relationship to them, and you just do it. And like, like a lot of people don't like that definition of a relationship. 
But like, does the cat want to sit there or does it want to sit closer to me? Does the cat want to play with this or with this? How does the cat let me know when it's hungry? (laughs) People are like, this does not sound like the ideal relationship. But it's that quality of curiosity and like pure attention. Cats will love you so hard and want to be so close to you. And I, I find that like a, this little miracle because one of the things I'm interested in as a psychologist is how caring for animals can help people recover from uh, adverse childhoods and trauma. And one of the ways that that works is often when you care for an animal and you start to see it develop an attachment to you. It's like this amazing self-compassion intervention too. Um, cats are really good for that if you are able to invest the time. So the words we were talking about like dogs, it's, the dogs, they just love you. They do. If what you want is unconditional love, get a dog. If you're really interested in the experience of having a unique relationship with someone whose trust you have to earn, <laughs> get a cat. <laughs> uh, th- there's th- you, you said a word in there, which is key for me. There's two things that I'm focused on. I'm writing another book and I'm, I'm really focused on two of those things. One is play. Mm-hmm. You talk about the need for play and joy and engagement and all the other activities, connection that, 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 that brings. Um, and attention. Mm-hmm. You talked about, you know, I've thought about culturally what we have understood is the value of getting attention, mm-hmm. getting love from our parents for past childhood, getting connected to other humans, attention, attention. But there's this magic of actually paying attention that yeah. the att- attention is one of the it may be the only real thing we have in this world is our attention and where we direct it largely dictates our experience. So yes. when is the relationship, let's, we already talked about play. So my last line of questions here are talk to me about the value of attention and you can relate it if you would to the pet thing that we're talking mm-hmm. about. You just mentioned it, but also then zoom back out, widen the aperture and talk about how we place our attention as humans and how valuable or invaluable yeah. that might be. You know, one of the the first things that I learned uh, when I was training as an artist, uh, like a visual artist, is that when you, and you you relate to this, when you pay really close attention to something, you almost fall in love with it. If what you're doing is you're just paying attention in a sustained way to try to really see something as it is. So that's interesting because it means what you choose to pay attention to, it, it, you really are, um, it's like we talked about how stress makes you really plastic to learning. Attention makes you really uh, vulnerable in that way too. And sometimes it's wonderful in that like if you really pay attention to anyone, you're going to, you in a pure way, you will probably find something that you connect with them over. You'll like them more. You know, spending time with people increases liking almost always. Um, but the other thing is if you're paying attention to something that, Maybe it's you didn't start off thinking this is who you want to become. It's probably going to be who you become anyway. So if it's something that makes you feel moral outrage and you're just paying attention to things that provoke that emotion, you're going to get more attached to and interested in that emotion. And so when we, what you choose to pay attention to, you should understand it as you're giving yourself to that thing. And you will end up in a relationship with it that is intimate. Mm, and so, so sometimes huge. that works against us. Yeah, that's we're, huge. We're you can see how that goes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ah. Um, but the other thing is uh, I, I also think that you can, you can choose the focus of your attention in a very proactive way. 
um, as the the lens that you want to train yourself to see more spontaneously. So it's, um, you know, many contemplative traditions, this is the whole idea behind a lot of contemplative techniques. You just think about something a lot, not because in that moment, something magical is happening. Like if I think about gratitude in that moment, that moment of gratitude, like cured me of something, you train it with a gratitude exercise so that in a relationship with a human being, when they do something for you, you're more likely to feel comfortable expressing that gratitude rather than feeling resentful that they did something. And now you're like, you have that obligation to them or or embarrassment, you know? So you can choose to pay attention to thoughts and emotions and ideas that you want to become your default. And that's that's how I think of attention training. It's a lot of times people talk about attention as just wanting to focus it. But it's it's also it's where you're pointing it. That is, it, it's such a great lever we have. So good, so good, Kelly. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show. I'm going to plug a couple of times again. The joy of movement. That's your most recent book uh, subhead. There is how exercise helps us find happiness, hope, connection, and courage. Uh, the upside of stress which is what, uh, again, I was introduced to your work, uh, why stress is good for you and how to get good at it. We didn't go deep on, but it's an uh, undercurrent of a lot of what we talked about is the willpower instinct, how self-control works, why it matters, and what you can do to get more of it. Highly recommend all of those books. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Is there a place where you would, rather than just the books that you would, speaking of attention, direct our attention to? Is there somewhere else you want us to go and see and how to participate with uh, you and your community? Uh, just my website, kellymcgonigal.com. But um, also, if you want something fun to pay attention to, there are two podcasts I love Can I that have nothing to do yeah. with. Can I Great. share them? Yeah, One's called StoryCorps and the other is called The Moth. And they're both just people telling stories about their lives. But I think it's, it's a when I teach, I, I teach a compassion training, an empathy building program, and these are some of the resources I use. It is wonderful to listen to people tell stories about their lives, their their failures, their great loves, their great, you know, what, what there's listening to other people talk about their lives in this very genuine way is a great thing to put your attention on. Wow. This is happening. I'm doing this. Bookmarked. <laughs> Noted here. Uh, Kelly, thanks again so much for being on the show. Always welcome anytime you come up with new stuff or you just want to chat. Um, thank you for in like uh, engaging with me on some of these ideas that I've had. And it's it's so fun to speak with you. Uh, and from everyone else out on the internet, uh, you know how to pay attention to Kelly and uh, how to get used to or close to her work. And in the meantime, uh, from Kelly and myself, we both bid you a, a good day and adieu. All right. Hey, before you go, thanks so much for listening. And if you got value from this show, chances are your community will too, right? In the particular lies the universal. Please share this link to the show with a friend or mention the show on social. That is a huge benefit for us in hopefully in exchange for providing value to you. I want you to know that I really appreciate your time, the attention, anything that you give to the show and the questions that you ask our guests either on social media or through my text community, all that is pure gold. This community, like any community, is a testament to that old phrase, a rising tide floats all boats. And by elevating one another, by sharing and resharing this show, 
the tidbits that you learn and the experiences you take away, all of that has a collective, massive positive impact on the world. So just a quick thank you. I appreciate all the effort you put into sharing the show. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together. <laughs>